I think it's fair to say, as others have noted, that John's gospel, like the other New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, isn't so much a book about the life of Jesus, but like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is a book about the life of Jesus leading up to the death of Jesus. John's gospel, if you know it, is famously split about 50-50 between all the events of Jesus' life leading up to the last week of his life and the other 50% dealing with the last week and those events immediately preceding and around the cross and then, of course, the resurrection. Right from the start of John's gospel, John the author has been pointing his reader to the hour or the time, depending on the translation of your Bible. So if you look back with me to John chapter 2, just flick back to near the start of the gospel, you would read these words. This is during the famous incident, the famous miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And Jesus, speaking to his mother on that occasion, said, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Or your Bible might say, my hour has not yet come. It's the same word in Greek. And just imagine that you knew nothing about the Gospels. Imagine you knew nothing about Jesus Christ and the whole story that we read in the New Testament part of the Bible. And somebody came up to you with a copy of John's Gospel and said, you must read this book. This is amazing. You must read about this person, Jesus Christ. This could change everything for you. So you start to read John's gospel as you would any other book. You start at the beginning and you get to chapter 2, not that long in, and Jesus is suddenly talking about his hour. The time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And as a reader, you would be intrigued. You would think, what's the time? What's the hour? What's Jesus talking about? John has dropped a little plot point in right at the start to keep you reading among other things. So you read on into this book, wanting to know what's going to happen, and you get to chapter 7, verse 30, and the opposition to Jesus is starting to increase, and you read this, 7, chapter 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time or his hour had not yet come. Gets more and more interesting. So you read on to chapter 8 and verse 20. And again you read, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Thinking, what is this time? What is the hour? What is this event, this happening that Jesus keeps referring to, the gospel keeps bringing up? And then in the chapter immediately before our reading tonight in chapter 12, we come to this great declaration in verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come, or the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour, the time that John's gospel has been leading us towards is the hour when Jesus will be glorified. And yet the staggering truth that we are going to find out if we were to read on through the rest of John is that Jesus' greatest glory was going to be the cross. 
If you've studied John, you know there's a sense in which the words glorification and crucifixion are almost interchangeable. In John, the hour had come. And that's why when we get to our reading tonight in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, why we've gone back to begin with before we go forward, we read this. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come or the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Another one of those trail of signposts to the hour. In fact, we have arrived in John chapter 13 at Jesus' very last evening, before that hour, before the day of his death. And Jesus gathers his disciples together for one last meal, verse 2, the supper. And it goes without saying that there must have been huge pressure on Jesus at this point in his ministry. He would have had a sense of anticipation, even dread, because he alone knew what lay ahead. Those feelings that are going to be fully revealed in Gethsemane later on, because Jesus knows what lies ahead, what coming to the hour means in reality is incomprehensible suffering, betrayal, and abandonment. And yet, his concern which is why filling in that background, that context to this passage is so important, yet his concern at this moment of extremity is not for himself, but, verse 1, for those he loved. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love or if you've got a little footnote at the bottom of your Bible passage, you'll see, or he loved them to the last. Jesus loves this group of disciples to the last. You see, this was a love that had seen and would see no let up. Despite all their faults, this ragbag of disciples, with many more failings to come, of course, Remember, every single one of these men would be gone by the morning, would have abandoned them. Yet Jesus' devotion and commitment to them was as strong and consistent as ever. That is such an encouragement, isn't it? That is such a comfort that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ tonight, that the same Jesus watches over you. He sees your faults, your failings, your nonsense. He sees our hard hearts and our dim minds. He sees our inexhaustible capacity to get things wrong, not to do what is good for us. But he doesn't change. He's not fickle. He's not hot and cold like you and I are. He loves his people to the end to the last. As somebody has put it so well, he treats the worst of us better than the best of us deserve. This is the wonder of Jesus Christ, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, the friend who will stick it out through thick and thin to the bitter end, always. 
and who does so even now in John chapter 13 when the walls on every side are closing in on him. Because, of course, verse 2, there is a traitor in the midst. Judas is scheming to betray him. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. But even as John mentions Jesus, he also wants us to know that Judas's treachery is just the outward face of a much bigger spiritual confrontation that is coming to a head at this time. Notice the reference to Satan in verse 2. And if we had read on to verse 27, we would see it again. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. You see, John wants us to know that behind these events, behind the coming trial and execution of Jesus, there are cosmic forces at work. You see, this isn't just one of countless grubby deals. It's not just one of those little abuses of power that go on all the time, leading to a miscarriage of justice. But John wants us to know that these events, the events that are now closing in, even in that upper room, are drawing together all the forces of spiritual darkness and rebellion against God. That the events of the coming hours are going to be the greatest of all struggles. The events upon which the fate and destiny of every man and woman will hang. And it is that context, that bigger context, when we see the cosmic dimensions, when we see what is at stake here, when we see what is going to unfold in the coming hours of Jesus' life, that makes his actions in John 13 all the more astonishing. Because in the middle of all this, in the middle of this supreme testing, Jesus is going to take time out to wash these people's feet and to humble himself before them. And John again gives us the insight into why Jesus was able to do that. And it was because Jesus knew that there was a bigger context to his life than his sufferings, than even the cross. You see John's comment in verse 3, his commentary on these events. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and goes on to wash their feet. In other words, Jesus knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. And he knew that God had given him all things. Jesus knew that his security and his value were not dependent upon the people who were around about him or indeed on his life being problem-free. As a truth, let me suggest that we need to grasp more than ever in our time and our culture. We live in a society that increasingly has no sense at all of a bigger context, of a bigger picture. All that matters is the here and now. 
these few short years, we are relentlessly told, in one way or another, is the whole game, the whole shooting match. This is it. So being successful now, being comfortable now, being powerful now, being popular now, is critical because that's all there is. This is it, folks. Your life is to be significant if it's to be important. There's nothing else going on. Our young people and all of us are susceptible to it, are relentlessly given the message in every front that you will be valuable and your life will be important if you impress people and are admired. On that basis, you will have achieved something. Your life will have added up to something. And if other people are going to be impressed and admire you, then the key way to do that in our society is to get stuff. And so we live. And Christians are not immune to this in that relentless cycle, that rat race of pursuit after handbags, holidays, and houses. Because by those things, you will be measured. You will be evaluated. Your life will be set up as being successful or being a failure. Well, nobody is going to think very much of Jesus in the coming hours except perhaps to pity him. This is a life without any of the trappings of that worldly success. No house, no friends. And yet there is no self-pity in this upper room. No spitting the dummy, no complaining. Rather just a quiet, determined desire to bless other people and to care for them. And you see, Jesus could do that because he knew that his significance was not based on those trappings of worldly success, but that he was loved by God, he was from God, he was going back to God, that he was the inheritor of all things, things not grafts, things not taken, but things freely given from God. You see, it's a perspective on our lives that if we can grasp it, will liberate us. You're a Christian here tonight. Your life has immense value and significance, more than you can imagine. Because you are a child of God. You are a soul immortal. You are made in God's own image. You are a friend of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the inheritor of treasure and a kingdom that will outlast the years. You will reign with him one day as a king and a priest. But actually, for most people in the world, for most people that you move among day by day, that's your secret. It's known to you and to God alone. Others won't see it. They won't recognize it certainly won't believe it. Like Jesus, they might just see someone with nothing much to show in their life other than a servant's towel. But that's fine. Because you know, God knows the reality that underpins your life. And one day, love those verses in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about 
the whole of creation, this world groaning and travailing, waiting to be released from all that afflicts it now. And that day will come, it says, when the sons of God, the children of God are revealed, are finally made known, their identity finally comes out and is seen. You walk down Princess Street tomorrow and nobody will give you a second look, but there's a day coming when the children of God will be revealed and every head will turn and creation itself will stop in its tracks. Which means like Jesus in John chapter 13, when we enter a room, our thoughts don't have to be that crippling preoccupation with ourselves. Will these people like me? Will I be cool? Will I be seen as witty? Are my clothes fashionable? Do I fit in? Am I desirable? But rather you can walk into a room and you can say, how can I bless somebody here? How can I care for somebody here? How can I encourage somebody here? I am the secret millionaire, spiritually speaking. Which is, of course, exactly what Jesus does in verse 4. He does something that both amazes and embarrasses his disciples. Something that cut right across the etiquette of the day. We know the situation, I'm sure. First century Palestine. Footwear would have been sandals, baking hot climate. So feet got typically very grubby and sweaty. So when you went to somebody's house, especially at the end of a day, it was considered good manners to provide washing facilities for people's feet. Sometimes that washing would be done by a slave because this, of course, was the most menial and basic of tasks that anybody could do. In fact, it was so low that in the Jewish culture of the day, Jewish slaves were exempted from it. You wouldn't even expect them to have to go to that level. It was the pooper-scooper job of the day, and it was somebody else's dog. This is what we're talking about here in Jewish culture, washing feet. So this group of 13 men arrive after a long day. You imagine that, can't you? Ever been in a locker room at the end of a long day? And they're all unwashed. And of course, nobody volunteers to do the foot washing. That just wasn't done at all. Don't have a slave there then. Too bad. So you can imagine the horror when Jesus gets up, lays aside his garments, gets a towel and water, and starts washing and drying the disciples' feet. Awkward. Three simple lessons, simple lessons that I'm sure we're all very familiar with. Nothing original here that we can draw from this passage, but if you're like me, you need to be reminded of them fairly regularly. You need to reboot yourself in these regards. The first lesson that we can take from what is happening here is very simply that Jesus is showing us that service isn't glamorous. If we are to be real Christ-like servants of God, this is the kind of example that Jesus expects us to follow. Verse 15, 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus is quite clear that his followers need to be people who are prepared to do the dirty jobs. When I was at Bible college many years ago now, the story was told a few years before I arrived there that the college was trying to cut back on its overheads, as all institutions tried to do, and they wanted to get students to do some of the housekeeping jobs so they could save a bit of money. And one of the things they wanted students to do was to do cleaning, and the poster went up looking for volunteers to clean the public toilet areas, and nobody volunteered. So the faculty thought, we'll do it. And the faculty all got together with their mops and buckets and went down to the toilets. And of course, everybody was horrified and embarrassed and immediately started volunteering to help once they knew the principal was involved. Went to a seminar, a training day a number of years ago on children's ministry, and the man who was leading it, who ran a big children's club in his own church in London, was talking about the fact that when new volunteers came to that children's club, he would often just put them for the first few weeks on juice duty. So all they were asked to do was get the juice ready for the kids' break time, fill up the cups, mop up the inevitable spills, and tidy everything away. And some people got a bit huffy about that because they were giving up their time. And they had talents. They had gifts. They had things they wanted to contribute. They'd come to lead. But it was a great test, he said, of their servant-heartedness. Were they there to serve the children or were they there primarily just to showboat their abilities? It's always a challenge to me when I think about my own church and I throw the challenge out to yourselves. What would Jesus have helped with today or this week in Charlotte Chapel that most of us try and avoid? But if Jesus came, he would be doing and we'd all be rushing to help. So serving isn't glamorous. Second lesson that's very clear is that serving others isn't conditional on other people's worthiness. Because, of course, Jesus washes Judas' feet. Even though he knew exactly what Judas was scheming, verses 21 onwards, that's hard to do, isn't it? (coughs) To humble yourself before someone who you know will sell you down the river for a few pounds, who will stab you in the back. Showing kindness to a noisy neighbor. Taking their bins out for them. Helping an unpleasant colleague at work so they can get away early on the Friday afternoon. Showing grace and hospitality to that pain in the neck church member. Hard to do. No, my natural reaction is to want to even up the score a little bit to want to deny privileges. It's doing things for people who may never show gratitude and who may never reciprocate. Too often in churches, service becomes conditional, doesn't it? It becomes about me and my image. 
People take their half, they get resentful, they drop out of things because I'm not appreciated. And if you're tempted, as we all are, and I so often am tempted to feel like that, then remember the Jesus who serves you. Despite all my ingratitude, my ignorance, my failure to reciprocate in often the most basic of ways. So serving others isn't glamorous. It's not based on the worthiness of the people that we serve. But thirdly, there's another lesson here, and that is that we need to let ourselves be served. You see, while the others cringed, Peter, of course, was typically outspoken, wasn't he? In verse 8, he's incredulous about what is going on. Verse 6, rather, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then by verse 8, he's adamant, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, we can commend Peter at one level, can't we? He wasn't worthy and he knew it. But Peter needs to understand two things, which is why Jesus is so insistent. Yes, in one sense, Jesus was too good to be the foot washer in this situation, but there was just the danger that Peter might think that maybe he was too good to be the foot washer. After all, he was one of the twelve, wasn't he? He was one of the inner circle, the three. He was the rock on which Jesus would build his church. So by insisting on washing Peter's feet, Jesus is robbing him of any pretensions in the future. If the Son of God, the Lord of glory, hours away from Calvary itself can do this, it's unlikely there's going to be a better reason why we can't serve other people, why we would be above such actions. We need to let ourselves be served. That might not seem a, a great challenge to throw out, but actually some of us find that quite hard. Some are good at doing things for other people. They put themselves out a lot to help other people. But they're not very comfortable when it comes to other people doing things for them. Maybe that's because they were taught or you were taught to look after yourself, to be independent, to be a coper, to get on with it. But the danger is that good Desire to look after yourself can become a subtle form of pride that you see being served as almost a sign of weakness. Over the years at Home Church in Greenview, you may have it here, there's been a ministry for families with newborn children. So when a new arrival comes and is taken home, meals are provided for that family by people in the church for a week or so once they get home just to help them during the settling in and adjustment period. And as somebody with three children, I have benefited from that ministry a number of times over the years. But supposing that ministry hadn't been available, I think myself and my wife would have coped, we'd have fed ourselves, we'd have you know, got through it, we would have done okay. But supposing we'd then taken the attitude of, 
no, no, we don't need that. We are fine. Don't have to do that for us. That could have had a number of effects. One, of course, would be to unspokenly give the message that the people who are taking the meals are obviously the strugglers. They're the people who need help, who aren't coping and able to organize themselves. And maybe those people would have then in turn felt the pressure to refuse those meals themselves rather than be a burden on the church that other people weren't being. And we could have all have retreated into our little silos of self-sufficiency. You see, being served can be humbling, but that is a good thing in itself. Peter needed to learn that lesson. Well, finally, this interaction with Peter points us to Jesus' ultimate service for Peter and indeed for every one of us. Jesus is firm, isn't he, in verse 8. He says, Peter, if you refuse this washing, you can have no part with me. To which Peter quickly replies, verse 9, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Love Peter, love Peter. You know, just go the other extreme. Okay, go the whole hog then. Don't leave a dry bit, top to foot. Then Jesus says something curious to him in verse 10. He says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. Peter, if you've already had a bath, you don't need another one. Just your feet. I think it's obvious that the conversation is moving beyond a discussion about soap and water at this point. Jesus is doing as he so often does, taking an everyday situation and he's now starting to apply it spiritually. In other words, the foot washing has now become a parable for something much deeper. Because the cleansing that Peter needs, that every single one of us needs, of course, is not outward, but of our very souls. The cleansing we need is to be cleansed inwardly from sin itself, from those inner stains of our guilty secrets, our selfish thoughts, our wicked actions, and our deep, deep disregard of God at so many levels and in so many ways. That's why, of course, when John the Baptist appears at the start of the Gospels, pointing people towards the coming of Jesus, he says, listen, folks, I'll baptize you with water, but the one who's coming, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. In other words, I can put some water on you, I can give you a rinse off on the outside, but the one who is coming, he can cleanse your very heart. He can cleanse you where no water can reach and no detergent can ever be effective. You see, for Peter and for everyone who will put their trust in Jesus Christ, the bath would be secured at Calvary. Peter would be clean. We can be clean. Forgiveness is possible. Because Jesus' love would extend all the way to the cross. The guilt and condemnation lifted for those who are prepared to humble themselves. Who are ready to recognize that need to be washed inwardly. 
who are ready to confess Jesus Christ as God's own Son and hand over their lives into His hands. And the amazing thing about Jesus, the amazing thing about the gospel, is that that can happen tonight. However you came in here, you could leave here a forgiven, cleansed, renewed child of God. You just have to ask. And for Peter, you don't need to be saved all over again. You're already a Christian. But you do need to stay close to keep washing, as it were, your feet. Daily confession, repentance, thankfulness, keeping that walk with Jesus close and fresh. Jesus serves us more than we could ever know. He serves us now, even as He watches over our souls in heaven, loving His people to the end. So let us serve one another and be served by one another, staying close to Christ, renewed and washed day by day. And may God bless His Word to us. Amen.